Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm here with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. Great to be back, Sarah. Although, one of these days, we should really try and be in the same room when we record this podcast. Yes, yeah, we're still recording this on our smartphones and our broom cupboards. It's a good job we had this technology to keep us working by the time the pandemic came along. And can you imagine trying to do all this without like smartphones or broadband? Yeah, and spending all day waiting for our dial-up connections. I mean, that is a horrifying thought. In fact, today we are focusing on technology and the smartphone revolution in an episode we're calling the Tectonic Shift. Yeah, Sophie Lundier, Senior Equity Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is going to take a look at a few key technology companies in detail, including the company formerly known as Facebook, which is Meta, and Apple. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Sarah. Yes, definitely um, plenty of change happening in the sector. But one thing has stayed the same, and that is the fact that we are all very much still glued to our smartphone. We certainly are. And we're going to talk to someone who has reported from the forefront of this revolution right from the beginning. Technology expert and author of Always On, Hope and Fear in the Smartphone Era, Rory Kethlin-Jones. Rory, it is really great to have you on the podcast. We've got so much to talk about, so much in your book and your experience. Thank you for being with us. Oh, great to be here. Great to be clutching a smartphone, uh, looking at um, uh, various other smart devices and plugged in to the always on era, without which, as you say, we'd be uh, having a pretty hard time over the last 18 months. We certainly would. Okay, Rory, so much more from you coming up a bit later. We're also going to have Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She's going to be on the podcast speaking to Tom Slater, co-manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust about the future of technology stocks. Plus, we'll have our quiz. And this time, I'm going to get to ask Susanna questions. And they're going to be needlessly difficult questions about social media. Thank you, Sarah. I'm not sure whether I should be worried. It does feel like we're all social media experts nowadays, especially after the past 20 months. Yeah, and the pandemic has seen technology play a part in our lives that none of us could have imagined. And investors have been getting behind the firms they think will be key to all our futures, haven't they? Yeah, they certainly have. I mean, the disruption brought about by the pandemic has really accelerated the shift to digital, which has meant some previously little-known companies have really become household names. Take Zoom, for example. I mean, the digitisation of our daily lives has really highlighted the ever-increasing importance of technology, which has driven valuation skywards. After that dramatic slide we saw in stock markets right at the start of the pandemic, we've seen a really big recovery and many tech stocks in particular go on to make huge gains. Of course, we did see those sharp falls on financial markets on Black Friday after worries about the Omicron variant surfaced. But in the early reactions from investors, tech stocks didn't really bear the brunt of the pain. The tech-heavy Nasdaq, for example, the Nasdaq Composite Index is still up by around 27% compared to a year ago. Many companies listed on the index have reached record levels this year. Of course, as ever, you can't take how something has performed in the past as an indication of how it will do in the future. Yes, it was a particularly unpleasant day and market falls are never comfortable to live through. There's always the temptation to sell up and head for the hills. But it is worth remembering that periods of volatility like this, they're just part and parcel of investing. And even when we get particularly sharp short-term falls, we shouldn't let this put us off that the long-term aims. Yes, anyone who lived through the market collapse at the start of the pandemic 
was likely to have been extremely worried at the time about just how far and fast the markets fell. But they'll also know that falls don't last forever because by the start of the first lockdown, stocks, particularly those big tech players we're talking about today, were already on their way up. What seems really striking now is how many companies are sort of seen as a technology play when they're involved in a vast number of different industries. Yes, with digital transformation, many companies are arguably turning into tech companies. So the definition is pretty broad here. It tends to be seen as any company involved in the technology sector, from semiconductor producers to e-commerce platforms, software providers, and even financial services companies. Some of the biggest tech stocks in the US have acquired a nickname of their own, of course, FANGS, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, although Google renamed as Alphabet and now Facebook has been renamed Meta, so it's the not-quite-so-catchy man's. There are clearly some strong reasons underpinning investors' optimism, but on the flip side, those of us with really long memories will remember what can happen when we get too over-optimistic. I remember just how uncomfortable the dot-com bubble bursting was. Yeah, there certainly does seem to be a whiff of a strong FOMO effect. Seems to be playing out here for some stocks. After all, who would want to miss out on investing in a rising market? But there can be problems when investors start jumping in for the wrong reasons. Some parts of the stock market can quickly become overvalued. And that's the worry right now, especially as we are still deep in the era of cheap money, with interest rates at ultra-low levels and central banks still pumping money into the system. But already... They are showing signs of turning off those taps and that could siphon some of the frothiness out of the market given that valuation of future cash flows of companies are linked to interest rates. Emma Wall is going to dig a bit deeper into the prospects for technology companies a bit later on in the podcast. But of course, tech isn't just what we invest in, it's how we invest too. So from our experience, smartphones are increasingly becoming the way people check their portfolio and invest. So in the year to June, on average, six clients logged into HL via their mobile every second. And we had seven times the number of mobile trades as we did in 2018. And it's not just established companies like HL. There's also been a boom in trading apps from newer arrivals in the market. Yeah, and it's not just trading. We also use technology to research investments, which is where the picture is more mixed. In a survey of 650 investors that Opinion ran for HL in September this year, we asked people where they got their investment ideas from. And while over a third said they researched information on the websites of respected financial companies, almost one in 10 said they used TikTok to get their ideas. And there were also mentions of Reddit, Facebook and LinkedIn and even Instagram. Among younger people, the trend was even more striking. And in many ways, it's really great news that social media is getting younger people and new investors to consider investment for the first time. But there's the risk that some of this is less about finding sensible long-term investments and more about speculating on the the flavour of the month in order to make a fast bug. Yes, because there's often posts in chat rooms, on social media, where speculation surrounding hot stocks really does run rife. The Reddit forum was the most popular social media platform to use for investing ideas among younger investors, according to our survey, which is particularly worrying given it's where the meme stock frenzy erupted this year with speculators piling into heavily pumped shares like GameStop. For some new investors, trading has clearly become a thrill and a form of entertainment rather than a well-thought-out long-term investment strategy. And the risk is that they could get their fingers seriously burnt following the herd into these highly risky purchases, which could scare them off investing in the future. Yes, and TikTok was the second most popular site to go to for investment ideas for younger people. And there's increasing concern about the power of influencers on sites like that. 
Well, Rory Kathleen Jones is something of a tech influencer, although in an entirely different way. I'd better point that out. He's an expert on all things tech after so many years reporting from the front line of developments. And he's also just written a book all about the smartphone revolution called Always On. Rory, thanks so much for talking to us. You're recording this on your phone too, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm very flattered to be talked of as an influencer, though. That's always been my ambition. Now, you mentioned in your book how the smartphone changed broadcasting, but also just so much more. Well, yeah, my book starts with the unveiling of the iPhone by Steve Jobs in 2007. And there's a huge acceleration in change in the years after that. And, and of course, when we went into the pandemic, we were at a stage where we'd suddenly become unsure about the technology. We knew its good sides, its connectivity and so on, and the fact that we could do so many things online. But we also knew about its negative sides, trolling and abuse and so on. But I think the pandemic's really highlighted how vital it's been to have that kind of connectivity. How would we have coped locked in our attics as I still am? I'm looking out at the back garden from my attic where I've been writing and broadcasting from for, for 18 months. How would we have coped without that level of connectivity? Without, for instance, things like FaceTime. I've got a two and a half year old granddaughter, only 10 miles across London, but didn't see her for months on end, except for the morning FaceTime call, which was brilliant. And more mundane things like Zoom calls and FaceTime calls for work and keeping connected with colleagues. So I think we did see just how vital the technology is during that pandemic. One of the things in your book you mention is the other side of that, the speed at which misinformation can be transmitted because of social media. Is that something that's concerned you during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it was on a twin track, wasn't it? You were getting good information and bad. One of the extraordinary things, of course, was that ridiculous idea that 5G, the future of this technology, well, the present of this technology now, uh, was somehow linked to COVID-19, a stupid conspiracy theory, but which spread like wildfire through smartphones, through social media, because it's the combination of smartphones and social media, which is such a powerful force. Don't forget, they sort of came along together. 2004, Facebook founded, 2005, YouTube, 2006, Twitter, then 2007, the iPhone comes along, which launches the smartphone era. It is an incredibly powerful force that's come along and transformed so many areas of our lives. The sheer power of the change has been something that obviously, you know, it's only natural we'll get very excited about. There does all seem to be that we we kind of expect too much of technology. So in, in your book, I know you go into the, the problems with track and trace, for example, and how much faith we had in the, the tech side of things from the outset that was probably a bit misplaced. And you also talk about sort of overhyping in general in tech. Now, without going into companies themselves, how much of a problem do you think this overhyping actually is? I think it's a natural thing which has been accelerated by the smartphone, by social media, a whole new breed of young investor that gathers on forums like Reddit, that has the ability to trade all day, every day, wherever they are, via their smartphones. And I think that contributes to the excitement and the PR army surrounding technology companies, which is huge, is incredibly keen to whip up that excitement. So Rory, what other concerns do you have potentially about what causes this overhyping in certain companies. When there is so much money being generated, when companies are coming from zero to worth billions 
in just a space of a, a few years, there is a huge temptation to exaggerate what one's got. And of course, there has been this new business model that's arrived over the last 15 years. Can you imagine, even back in the 80s, uh, companies being valued highly when they were, quotes, pre-revenue, companies that literally had no money coming in whatsoever, being valued at hugely high levels. But because some of those companies have ended up being genuinely worth a lot of money for the long term, there's the temptation of every small startup to claim that they are going to be like that. I mean, one of the hugely interesting things that I mentioned in this book is that we've had this extraordinary revolution over the last 15 years, but it's actually not shown up in GDP or in particular in productivity. We're kind of waiting for that to happen. And one view of it is that it's a bit like when electricity came along. It took quite a while for people to reorganise, for instance, the way factories ran around electricity before we saw uh, the fruits of that come through in a, in a productivity revolution. And maybe that's the same thing that's happening with this digital revolution. Companies, organisations, people need to reorganise themselves, need to think again about the way they work to fit in with these new tools. An optimistic view, again, would be that that has been accelerated over the last 18 months. We are all working differently. Maybe we'll be more productive. Just going back to the idea of the overhyping of things, I, I think we, we can't really talk about overhyping without mentioning crypto. What do you think the future is for it? In all my years of covering technology, I've never met anything that is so overhyped and frankly so full of questionable standards than the cryptocurrency world. It started with, with covering Bitcoin. I remember buying a pizza for half a Bitcoin for the Radio 4 PM program. That would have been about a $30,000 pizza these days. Uh, at every stage, the hype has grown and the substance beneath doesn't seem to have really proved itself. It was about five years ago, I suppose, at least five years ago, that I was told, don't worry about Bitcoin, worry about blockchain, the technology beneath it, that is going to be bigger than the internet, it's going to change everything. And yet when I talk to software engineers, experienced software engineers, they say blockchain is a fairly simple technology, and is a solution looking for a problem. Uh, and it's nothing like as revolutionary as it claims. But certainly the financial world is beginning to turn influenced by the fact that these assets keep being more valuable. And it's very difficult to be the naysayer these days. Uh, there are plenty of naysayers, but they're going much quieter because even the mainstream of, of the financial world seems to be buying into crypto. Do you think this will change, though, once uh, fresh regulations are inevitably uh, brought in by regulators around the world? It will only change if things start heading in, in the other direction. They have in certain circumstances. Think of the ICO boom of a few years back, initial coin offerings. I remember doing a radio programme about this. People were selling tokens based on ideas such as love on the blockchain, dating on the blockchain, buying shares of luxury cars on the blockchain, just about any idea you could imagine that would work on the blockchain. That was a huge bubble and it burst. But I think there will need to be regulation, particularly surrounding advertising of crypto. I mean, you can't step onto the London Underground without seeing cryptocurrency adverts. The whole of the football industry in particular seems to have bought into it in a big way. And I think there probably needs to be a really tight look at that to make sure that vulnerable people aren't being persuaded to put their money into extremely risky investments. Absolutely. But do you think that there are grounds for real optimism in terms of the growing role that 
smartphones and these tech developments might have in healthcare, for example? You're talking from your own experience as well, or are you frustrated with progress here? Oh, no, I think that, that that is a really good point. The final section of my book is more focused on healthcare. There's all sorts of potential in using smartphones to monitor all sorts of conditions. I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's and I'm involved in a, a tech trial there to develop potentially a smart watch that could measure very precisely the symptoms of Parkinson's because it's a, it's a very sort of vague and disparate condition. Uh, your doctor sees you once every four months and says, how are you doing? And you find it quite difficult to describe. And if you can start describing the condition better, then you can start prescribing medication in a more efficient way. There's all sorts of exciting potential there. And I'm reasonably hopeful that that will be realised. Yes, one gets impatient waiting for this to happen, but there's a lot of money behind it. So what do you think the kind of more immediate prospects hold for the smartphone and for the companies and apps that really capitalise on it? Because there are real rumblings, for example, in US Congress about trying to limit the power and reach of some of these companies. Obviously, it's Facebook or rather Meta, as we should call it, which is mainly in in the sights of uh, regulators in the US and in Europe and, and here in the UK. It's social media in the main, which is the target. There will be tighter regulation, but getting there, deciding how it will work is a really thorny problem, which means balancing rights to freedom of speech, which, of course, are particularly important in the US with their First Amendment, with protecting young people from perceived dangers. I think this is a very thorny problem and it won't be fixed in a hurry. Doesn't seem like it. OK, Rory, thank you so much for that. Do stay with us because we're going to bring back in Sophie Lund Yates to talk about Meta. Uh, Meta certainly has been hitting the tech headlines lately and it's not just about its name change is it from Facebook? Hi Susanna, absolutely not. So as you know we've touched on Facebook becoming Meta, it's kind of similar to when Google renamed its parent company to Alphabet. The media went a bit nuts that time but the underlying picture in, in Meta's case is pretty much the same. On one hand the name change to Meta kind of signals how seriously the group is taking its plans to build out this so-called metaverse, um, which is where people, or rather their avatars, um, would kind of meet up and and be able to communicate. And as an idea, it sounds very far-fetched, but it's not not really outside the realms of of possibility when you think about how much um, increasing popularity virtual reality is enjoying. And really, the rise of social media as we know it today We would probably have called that impossible just a couple of decades ago. So I don't think the metaverse is perhaps as far away as people think it might be, but we're definitely not there yet because what's crucial to understand is that Meta is still very much the same company as it was before, and that is essentially an advertising business. Ad fees are Meta's bread and butter. Um, Marketing teams around the world pay very handsomely for the data left behind by Facebook's billions of users, and it is billions. And that status quo is not going to change anytime soon. Um, its reach into our lives is is completely unparalleled, um, which is partly why um, ad revenues held up so well during the pandemic, which is something we had been a little bit concerned about. And as and when the group makes moves um, to reach even further into our social lives with this metaverse, that importance to advertisers is, is only going to grow. But like I said, really, at the moment, it's it's kind of a bit of a a pipe dream than something that is happening tomorrow. Um, So people should be careful not to get too carried away. Let me bring back in Rory, you're listening to all of this. I mean, you put on the virtual reality goggles many years ago. 
how do you foresee that VR is really going to be integrated in the future? Do you have hopes that there could be a lot of potential here and it might change our lives? Well, there's an awful lot of weight behind this whole idea of the metaverse that we will live in a virtual reality world. Don't forget, it's been tried already with Second Life, which I think started about 20 years ago. There was one poor journalist from the Reuters news agency that was posted permanently in Second Life. They made him change his name to Adam Reuters. It is a compelling vision in many ways that, for instance, I could go to my local football team if I wasn't feeling well and didn't want to trudge out in the cold and I could sit in the virtual stand next to my normal neighbour or my avatar could sit next to the avatar of my normal neighbour watching the football, uh, shouting and joining in and seeing a real-life football game beneath me. So that is a compelling vision. It's one of many that people are painting. But there is a big technology chasm to leap over, which at the moment means you do have to strap on one of those headsets. They're pretty clunky still. And I find generally when I show people virtual reality, the first time they see it, they're amazed. The second time they're kind of, that's okay. And the third time they're a bit meh. So I think that there are hurdles to clear. Okay, Rory, thank you very much. Well, Sophie is still with us. Sophie, tell us more about other stocks that you've been looking into that have huge reach in our lives at the moment. This one is not going to be a surprise to anybody, and that is Apple. Its brand is completely unrivaled. And if you think about it, that little tiny, shiny embossed piece of fruit um, on the back of all of its devices has done something remarkable to the psyche of consumers all over the globe. What's particularly interesting at the moment is that dogmatically loyal customers mean Apple could hold up better in an inflationary environment. Because although at times of high inflation, discretionary spending comes under fire, the same rules don't quite apply to products coveted as much as Apple's are. And us spending extra time on our screens, as we've been talking about in in today's podcast, obviously means great news for Apple's hardware sales in the fullness of time, Um, which I should add, those hardware sales are, are still definitely the main story. But it's also good news for the growing services division. So things like the App Store, Apple Music, to a slightly smaller extent, Apple TV and the like. You know, Apple have built hardware that integrates seamlessly with other Apple products. So once you've got their hardware, then it's quite tough to operate outside of that. Anyone with an iPhone will will know that. If this services division continues growing like it has been, you know, that should really be a great read across for margins because adding a user to a piece of software costs a lot less than designing and building a new laptop or phone. Apple is more exposed to the ongoing supply chain disruption than some of its peers because of that that hardware element Um, and that does kind of muddy the water a little bit in the shorter term. So we might be fixed to our screens but what are we doing on them and uh, Black Friday sales come to mind and so really Sophie what do you think the prospects are then for Amazon? You can't ignore Amazon. No absolutely not I cannot talk about us being glued to our screens especially around Black Friday, without us mentioning Amazon. Consumers snapped up products from Amazon's site when the pandemic first hit. And while growth rates have started to slow, the increased reliance on online shopping is definitely here to stay. And, you know, we've all seen, you know, the recent headlines around 
Black Friday sales appear to be positive. Um, so that may well show up in, in the next set of numbers as well. But what's even more exciting from kind of the analytical standpoint when we're looking at the stock is the growing Amazon Web Services business. So this is essentially virtual computer storage and power, which again has been massively buoyed by the pandemic because of our new flexible working habits. And a bit like with Apple Services business, this could be much higher margin, potentially, potentially even more exciting growth opportunity. The biggest question now is margins kind of in the retail, the core retail segment. We're in a situation now where operating cost growth is outpacing revenues because the boom in business over the last 18 months very much came with extra resource costs. Amazon does have quite a lot of cash on hand, which means it's not a huge alarm bell right now, but it's something I would like to see the new CEO, Andy Jassy, put to rights in, in a decent time frame. Sophie, thanks very much. Now we can hear from Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Sandstone. She's been talking to Tom Slater, who's co-manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, about his technology investments. Hi, Tom. Hello. So it has been quite an extraordinary run for tech stocks. I mean, they were already doing pretty well. And then the pandemic hit and it seems to have really accelerated growth. Why is that? These companies have been able to provide a significant amount of really important services to people during the pandemic, whether it's searching for products, socialising with people, trying to get our work done. These companies have been a really important part of the solution. And so it's brought forward a lot of demand for these companies. Now, one of the acronyms that is so associated with tech stocks are the FANG stocks. Where are they now? So the first thing to note is that the FANG acronym no longer really works because Facebook has changed its name to Meta Platforms and Google has changed its name to Alphabet. But that aside, it was never a term that I was fond of. The reason for that is, it, in my mind, frames the way you think about these companies. It suggests some kind of equivalence between them. I think that that's really quite dangerous. These companies have never been that alike. Sure, they all benefit from the move towards online. But actually, you know, if you think about Facebook or Google, you know, those are advertising businesses. But that's quite different from, say, an Amazon, where it's competing with John Lewis or Tesco's or any of the other sort of high street retailers where you might buy these products from. But one of the challenges I think several of them face today is that they have become very large on account of just the enormous success that they've had. Will they be able to address the concerns of regulators, the concerns of society, and address these challenges whilst continuing to innovate and to delight their users? That balancing act gets harder and harder as you get bigger. In the sort of days of old, you'd think, okay, tech is either a company who makes hardware or software. But actually, now tech is everything. It's every sector. It's retail, e-commerce, it's logistics. You know, there are loads of companies now which kind of blur the lines between the sector that they sit in. Is that a challenge or an opportunity for you? Well, I think it's a huge opportunity. I think you've seen this incredible progress driven by technology, ubiquitous mobile communication of advanced software in a relatively narrow part of the economy. You know, we've touched on these examples in media and retail, and that's driven huge change and huge opportunity. But I think what we're seeing now is those core technologies applied to a much broader section of the economy. We're seeing 
lots of interesting developments in the food industry, which I think is a really useful example because you might think that food would be one of the last areas to digitize. But actually, from first from ordering platforms, then through delivery platforms, you know, I think you're just seeing real changes in behavior that have been captured by the new and interesting companies that are coming through. You can go to transport and electrification of transport driven by companies like Tesla. But I think that's nothing as compared to the impact of software and the way that we're going to change our behavior and interact with these services. I think it's important to talk about evaluations. I mean, past performance is, as we know, no guarantee of, of future returns, especially when performance has been so strong. What are you thinking when, when you look at these valuations? Because some of them across the broad tech sector look extraordinary and, and actually quite worrying. Well, I think when you look at valuation, you, you have to keep in mind that fundamentals condition valuation and not the other way around. So I think first you have to look at the underlying performance of these businesses and the outlook for that performance. What we've seen with a lot of these um, technology businesses is that they've been able to grow incredibly rapidly from already huge scale with very modest requirements for capital. In an environment where growth has been relatively scarce, the interest rates are incredibly low, the return that you can get from um, fixed income is low, these rapidly growing earnings streams are incredibly valuable. But for us, the way we handle it is to say, let's look out five years. What has to happen for us to make a significant return over that five-year period? What do you need to assume and how likely is that? And accepting that you can never give a definite answer, you can only think in terms of probabilities. That takes you to where the, the most interesting and exciting opportunities are. You're not a fan of the FANGS acronym. As you say, it doesn't work now anymore. What's the future then if those are presumably what's made up the past? If we go to the, the healthcare example, if you look at this area where you see the intersection of these modern technologies with healthcare, I think there are some really interesting things happening. We'll all have heard of Moderna because of the vaccine that they've produced for COVID-19. But what's really interesting to me is the process by which they got to that vaccine. Effectively, they're a software company. They write code, except that instead of the code being in zeros and ones, it's in GTs, A's and C's. It's genetic code. And that's how they were able to get to their COVID vaccine so quickly because their process had many of the characteristics of a software business. And I think you can then take that process and apply it to all sorts of other interesting areas. Infectious diseases is a huge universe. There have been more than 80 uh, new viruses discovered in the past 50 years. I think it's only eight of them that we have a vaccine for today. So there's huge progress to be made in infectious disease. Um, but also this technology can be applied in other areas, cancer being one. If you come at it from a completely different point of view, look at drug discovery. The companies that we're seeing today are applying artificial intelligence, machine learning, and are able to do millions of experiments a week. And not based on a pre-existing hypothesis, but more on let's just see where the data takes us. You can bring drugs to the clinic more quickly and at a fraction of the cost of what we used to historically. Just that whole area of the intersection of healthcare and information technology is one which is really interesting and we, we're really just scratching the surface of today. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. So that was Emma Wall with Tom Slater, co-manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. 
And this time I've been spending even longer thinking about social media than usual. And I've tracked down some lesser known moments in social media history. So to start us off, Susanna, an early social networking site was sold to ITV in 2005 for £175 million. And then ITV sold it on again four years later for just £25 million, So that's quite an impressive loss. But do you know what that site was? Well, do you know what? I think I do, but I'm going to phone a friend. And luckily, we have Rory Kethlin-Jones here. Rory, uh, I'm pretending to phone you now. Yeah, I happen to know this because, and another plug, I did a radio series 10 years ago called The Secret History of Social Networking. And we talked about this company, which was called Friends Reunited, a social media craze before Facebook, and was also credited with breaking up many marriages when people got together with their old school sweethearts. How interesting. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan. Uh, it does seem to be limited to what happened in maths classes back in the 1980s. Are we right, Sarah? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, yeah, the idea of a social network deliberately designed to put you in touch with everyone that you'd spent years avoiding just seems like a terrible idea. And it just got overtaken by Facebook and Twitter and, of course, MySpace. This was an early social network and it peaked in 2008, but it was revamped in 2013 in an effort to get teenagers back to the site. And a particular pop star became the face of the brand. But can you tell me who that pop star was? I have no idea. Rory? No, I have no I'm, I'm feeling embarrassed now. We should know, shouldn't we? Whoever he or she was, I think that was a pretty tough gig, though, given that Facebook was already hugely popular. Sarah? Well, I'll put you out of your misery. It was Justin Timberlake. It was kind of weird that a few years later, obviously, he played Napster's Sean Parker in The Social Network, which was that 2010 film about Facebook. And if you're wondering about MySpace, it actually continues. It lives on as a music-sharing site. Mm. Well, you know, I should have known that. I mean, I did interview, believe it or not, Justin back in the early noughties as part of a report I was doing on the music industry. But he clearly didn't make make that much of an impression on me, given that I completely failed in getting that answer right. Finally, last question. So who is the first person on Twitter to get to a million followers? So I'm going to give you a clue. He used to be married to Demi Moore. I think I know. It's got to be Bruce Willis. He of diehard fame. Definitely Bruce Willis. You're both wrong. It was Ashton Kutcher, who was apparently the biggest person to follow in 2009. A Kutcher he was on Twitter. Now it's all coming back to me. Well, that's it for my quiz. I think I'm done with setting the questions. I think maybe I'll hand over the the reins to you, Susanna, next week. I'll take the next time. OK, before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 29th of November and all information was true at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice, so you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest. Yes, this is not advice or recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment, and investors should form their own views on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, and it's considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Rory, Sophie, Emma, Tom, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Yes, thank you. And thank you very much, Rory, for being with us. I hope you enjoyed being on Switch Your Money On. Definitely. It's been a blast. And I'm feeling a bit embarrassed that I didn't do better on the quiz. 
Thanks, Rory, for being with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye.